I'm going to read again verses 21 to 23, and then we'll pray. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, I, Paul, was made a minister. Lord, we have enjoyed just our time reflecting on your supremacy and on your sufficiency. Your supremacy over all things and your sufficiency to save all sinners. No one, <clears throat> no one need fear or despair that they are out of reach of your sufficient arm to save, your sovereign arm that can extend to any person, anywhere in life. And we are grateful for we know people in our lives who have rejected you, who uh, refuse to listen, who will not come. Oh, Lord, you can bring them because you are sufficient, because you are able to save. And, And you are not only able to save, but you save forever. Those whom you save are yours forever. You never let them go. And we are grateful for this truth. As we look on this today, encourage hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're continuing to look at the sufficiency of Christ to save you forever. So this is part two, really, um, of this focus on verse, really on verse 23. All whom Christ saves, he saves forever. Or as Paul put it here in verse 23, Those who are now reconciled, right, who are saved, they continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. By which he means, then, he says, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. So the faith of those whom God saves, it perseveres, he says, to the end. So Paul is putting this glorious truth before the Colossians because they've been told by some false teachers who have come in That something more than the gospel is needed and something better than Christ is required. And so Paul has turned around and he has responded to this by declaring Christ's supremacy over all things because he is God. He's supreme over the church. He's firstborn from the dead. And for these reasons, he then assures them that Christ is able to reconcile them to God and to save them forever. And the reason that Paul gives them is because when he saves you, he transforms you completely. The Spirit of God regenerates you. He makes you, as Paul says in Corinthians, he says, a new creature in Christ. And as, as the promise of the new covenant from Ezekiel, you're a new creature who has a new heart. Right? The heart is the center of, of, your, of all that you do. That's the way it's pictured in the Bible. Right? And he says, I give you a new heart. And you know what, that, what you're going to do with that new heart? You're going to walk in my ways. You're going to observe my ordinances. That's the promise of the new covenant. And so as clear as the Bible is about the characteristics of genuine faith, it's equally clear in warning that one's faith in God can be false. We must all understand the sobering truth that faith can be false. And this is what we spent our time looking at last week. 
Scripture testifies that those who fall away from their faith in God and don't return, they give evidence that their faith was false from the start. They were never truly saved. From Jesus, we came to understand three characteristics of false faith. The first characteristic is that false... There's a lot of words here to stumble over. False faith doesn't last. False faith doesn't last. We saw this from Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, where he highlights four different responses to the gospel. And all the responses were, to varying degrees, they were initially positive. In other words, none of them just outright rejected the gospel, at least not according to the parable as he told it. Two, though, two of these responses, the second and the third that he mentions, they had a measure of belief that resulted in external responses such as joy or genuine efforts to follow Christ. In both cases, though, the belief and the responses, they were only temporary. And Jesus' point is that their faith was false from the start. They illustrate those who give the appearance of becoming a Christian. But they were never actually saved. Only the last soil is the fruit of salvation. And Jesus was careful. He was careful to mention what identified it as genuine faith. It produced fruit that persevered. It produced much fruit. Right? It pictures the life of the Christian from the time they're saved onward. It's a constant producing of faith. But it begins with salvation. And then this fruit just continues to be produced in their life. And it perseveres all the way to the end. So that was the first characteristic of, uh, that is that false faith doesn't last. The second characteristic is that false faith can't always be discerned by others. And we learn this from Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, where an enemy, he snuck into a man's field and he sowed bad seed in amongst the good seed. That was the parable. And and then Jesus says that the result was that tares, they grew up amongst the wheat. And tares are simply weeds that resemble wheat. So they're very difficult to distinguish. And so Jesus is teaching here that false believers, they will be mingled in amongst genuine believers. But then he's careful to make sure we understand as the church that it's not our job to go in and sort them out. The church is to preach the gospel. That's our chief responsibility and duty. We preach the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. God can change a tear into wheat, I guess we could say. He can transform you by hearing the gospel. I don't know if that totally fits within the parable, but you get the idea, right? He can take you sitting there. Maybe you've been sitting there for years, sitting there thinking you're a Christian. You're doing Christian things. You're looking like a Christian. You act like a Christian. You smell like a Christian. And then, he, and then you hear the gospel one day, and the Spirit of God causes you to finally see that you never were a Christian. You were just acting like one. See, He can do that for you. He can save you right here from the same chair or pew that you've been sitting in all your life. 
and never realized it. And we do that by preaching the gospel. That's how he works. That's why we camp out on the gospel. We don't move on from the gospel. There is nothing more practical and more important than the gospel. And that's why we preach it. But we also do something else. We deal with sin. When God reveals sin in someone's life, we deal with it out of love. We approach, we speak, we, we appeal, we reason, we beg. And our hope, our prayer, is that the person who's stuck in some sin, holding on to some sin in their life, will listen and they'll repent. Right? But if they don't, it can proceed on to where we just simply say, okay, you're acting like an unbeliever, so we're going to send you out into the world where you belong because that's what you're acting like. Are we declaring them unsaved? No. We're saying you're just not you're not living a life that's consistent with being a Christian. You're holding on to some sin. We're praying that you will repent. So that's what we're to do. And every faithful church will do those two things. Faithfully preach the gospel and faithfully deal with sin in the church. The task, though, of sorting the wheat from the tares, well, that ultimately belongs to God. And at the end of the age, he's going to instruct his angels. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to separate out those who have managed to hide their lawless living from others in the church, but were always seen by him. And then this led us into the last thing to understand about false faith. It is characterized by lawlessness. False faith is characterized by lawlessness. And in Matthew 7, Jesus says, that the ones who will enter his kingdom are those who do God's will. Their faith and their faithful works, they continue steadfastly. Their, their obedience is not what saves them. Their obedience is not what saves them. It's what characterizes them. Did you see the difference? You're not saved by your obedience. But if you're saved, it characterizes your life. You're obedient to Christ. Why? Because you remember you got that new heart that He gave you. That He's written His laws upon. And you want to walk with Him. That's what characterizes your life. Do genuine believers continue to sin? Don't raise your hand. I know every one of you should raise your hand, but you don't need to. I know the answer already. You sin just like David sinned. You can even sin grievously sometimes, just like David did. But here's David did. But here's what you'll also do: you'll grieve over that sin, and you will repent of it. That's what David did. That's what the man after God's own heart will do. He won't remain in his sin; he'll turn from it. But Jesus characterizes the ones whom he says he's going to send away at the end of the age, like the tares. Or, as he said, those who come to him, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Right? He sends them away, though. Why? He says, depart from me, you who, here's the key, practice lawlessness. See, they not only, they, they, they profess to know him. Right? They, they call him Lord. But they clearly think that they do know him. That's, that's what's evident here. They think they know him. They even point out the ministries that they will that they were involved in. But instead of hearing, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. 
they minimized and they justified their wicked speech, their hatred of others, their greed, their immorality, their hard, unforgiving heart, and on it goes. Even though they sat in a church and heard sermon after sermon after sermon about such things, they continued to delude themselves. They chose only to hear the word instead of doing the word. So Jesus, as well as the apostles, they knew that not everyone who says they are a Christian are actually saved. Far too many churches are content to just reduce salvation down to praying a prayer. Far too many American Christians are content to accept a cheap imitation of Christianity that allows you to live however you want and still think that you're going to heaven when you die. And the problem is is that Jesus rejects such teaching as false. Christ is not Savior or Lord. He is Savior and Lord. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? See, the one who is saved, he desires to follow only Christ. Because Christ has become everything to him. We all follow something, right? We might be friends, it might be culture, it might be family, it might be our own selfish desires, or it's God. You can only follow one thing at a time. You can't follow Christ and follow something else. Jesus says you're going to hate the one and you're going to despise that one or you're going to love the one and be devoted to the other. You can't do both. It's one or the other. Jesus comes first or not at all. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's his step. And there's no, there's no negotiation here. The bottom line is if, your life, is if your life is characterized by unrepentant, lawless living, whether it's known by others or not, whether you've ever been confronted by it or not, that's beside the point. If you know that you are living lawlessly, then you need to repent and you need to come to Christ because your faith is false. Now still, by way of introduction, I think it's worthwhile to take a moment and summarize some of the common views regarding the security of the believer in salvation. One view is called conditional security. Conditional security. It views a Christian's salvation as tentative. It's only secure if certain conditions are maintained, namely that they remain faithful until the very end. Just like an athlete must finish the race to receive the prize, well, the believer must finish the race to be saved. And those who hold to the believer's security being conditional point to certain verses. There's several, I'm sure, but here's a couple. Matthew 24. If you'd like to turn there, Matthew 24. Matthew 
Matthew 24, verse 11 to 13 is really the section there. And he says, so Jesus here is describing the last days. So it's all future focus. It's all future focus. And then he says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So there are those who would say the condition to be saved is that you must endure to the end. Implying what? That if you don't endure, if you fall away, well, you are now no longer saved. There's also 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there if you'd like. He says, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, he says, you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, this sounds very much like what Paul is saying in our text in Colossians 1, where he's saying he has now reconciled you, right? You are saved. That's 1 Corinthians. He has now reconciled you. That's Colossians. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, that pictures the end goal. That's the crossing of the finish line. That's salvation. Now here at the end of life, you're now before him holy and blameless. And then he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And as Paul says in Corinthians, unless you believed in vain. Uh, he says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So this sounds very similar. And I want to show you that neither Jesus, when he spoke in Matthew 24, nor Paul here in 1 Corinthians or Colossians, our verse, neither of them are suggesting that your salvation is conditional. These verses and others that are like them, are not warning that one's final salvation is conditioned upon faithfulness to the end. No, these verses are identifying what is characteristic of one who is presently saved, who is now reconciled, because that's the key here. It's understanding that these verses are talking about you are saved right now, not you will be saved. In Matthew 24, the distinction there is that's all future focused. When he says the words, you will be saved, he's talking about that time in the future, and he's describing those who are saved then. It's not a will be saved if you do this. And so I want to show you that's not, that's not the condition here. It's the characteristic. That's the distinction. But before we get to that, let me just bring another view before you. Another view regarding the believer's security is that you are reconciled to God regardless of how you live. Now, we've kind of already addressed this, but I just want to put it out here and state it in such a way that I think is important. The best representation of this view, that you're saved regardless of how you live, is, is that phrase that we're probably all familiar with, is once saved, always saved, right? Once saved, always saved. So I, I did mention this, this last week. And I mentioned it kind of again in just recapping all this. This phrase, does it express truth about salvation? Yes, it does. It does. Those whom Christ has saved are indeed always saved. They're saved forever. But here, here's what's important. In summarizing what the Scripture teaches about the believer's security as once saved, always saved, here's what you must also do. You must also submit yourself 
to Scripture's description of one who is actually saved. That's when that verse now expresses truth. Okay? Is it a right under is a right understanding of the gospel required for salvation? Is a right understanding of the gospel required for salvation? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> but are you saved by a right understanding of the gospel? No. No, that's not enough. Just understanding the gospel is not enough. Must there be a profession of trusting in Christ alone for one to be saved? Yes, absolutely. But such a profession of trusting in Christ alone may be rooted in a deceived heart. James is a key example of this. James describes a faith that in that is in God but it is purely intellectual it's all belief and he uses two words to describe this intellectual faith dead and useless turn to James chapter 2 a faith that is only about that is only able to just simply describe what's true about the gospel Describe that Christ alone is how you are saved and all that, but it's only in the head. He says, that's a faith. Yeah, that's faith. But it's dead and it's useless. James chapter 2, verse 17. He says, uh, <clears throat> he's talking about faith and works, beginning in 14. Right, and, and he's contrasting two. And then he says in verse 17, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Faith by itself, without works, is dead, he says. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And then here's, here's where we get into the, into the good stuff here. You... He's talking to this person who believes in their head. You believe that God is one. Must you believe about God, truth about God in order to be saved? Well, yes. But if all you believe is just that he's just just in your head and it hasn't done anything else, here's where James is calling you out. You believe that God is one. You do well. You need to believe that because it's true. But here's... Here's the point. The demons also believe this. And they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? A faith that doesn't lead to a transformed life that produces these faithful works, he's saying, that can still be called faith. But it is dead. It's useless. Useless in what sense? It is as useless to save you as it is useless to save the demons who also believe and even shudder about this. Are demons saved by what they believe? No, they know it more than you know it probably. And they shudder. And he's saying, just knowing this is not enough. Now, as we 
as we saw last week, the New Testament warns you that you can have a type of belief that doesn't save you. Jesus himself, he warns that people can have the right intellectual faith, a right understanding of the gospel. They can even claim and believe that they are saved, and yet their lives prove otherwise. And to, so to what we looked at last week at the parable of the soils, if you were here and recall this and that's fresh in your mind, let me add Paul's words to Titus as another example. Speaking about those whom he... Who, who Paul describes as rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers. This is what Paul says to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God. And they can probably tell you the gospel, and they can tell you a lot of things about Jesus. They profess to know God. But he says, by their deeds, though, they deny Him. So this idea of once saved, always saved, it's not incorrect. As long as you define saved according to the testimony of Scripture. And the Scriptures testify that those who are truly saved, they have undergone a radical transformation of their attitudes, their behaviors, who they are, their very natures. They have been fundamentally changed through the Spirit's work of regeneration. So I think that there's another way of stating this wonderful truth, the same truth, but stating it in a different way, this truth of the believer's security that incorporates what the Bible clearly sets forth as the characteristic of genuine salvation. Instead of once saved, always saved. What we should say is once saved, always changed. Once saved, always changed. The nature of the Spirit's regenerating power is that He fundamentally and forever changes the believer in Christ. And we see this reflected in Paul's words right here back in our text in Colossians when he describes those whom Christ has now reconciled. You are reconciled right now as those who continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. So the first application from our text is to understand that faith can be false. Now we turn now to the, the main application that really comes right out of the text. And what Paul is saying here in verse 23, and that application is you need to continue firm in the faith. Continue firm in the faith. Now remember what was going on in the church there in Colossae false teachers. They're attempting to draw the Colossian believers away from faith in Christ alone. And so Paul is responding now. He's telling them about his supremacy over all things, his sufficiency to reconcile sinners, and then he gives them the way to know that they are indeed reconciled to God. How are they to know that Christ has indeed reconciled them? Well, we don't need to go into the fact that they need to believe the gospel, right? That's understood. They need to have heard the gospel and believed about Christ and all that, but now he's pointing to something that's characteristic of the, of the faith of the person who's been reconciled to God, whose heart has been changed. Is it because they prayed a prayer? No. Are they reconciled because they say they're a Christian? Well, that would be hopeful, but no, that's not the reason that Paul gives. 
Paul's answer, he says, is you are now reconciled if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. So first, I want you to see this, that steadfast faith is the mark of the genuine believer. Steadfast faith is the mark of the genuine believer. Now, when our, word, when our ears hear the word if, if indeed you continue, it sounds like a condition. It sounds to our ears like Paul is saying, you will be reconciled as long as you continue believing. That's what it sounds like to our ears. That's how those who say that security, the security of your salvation is conditional, that's how they interpret Paul's statement here. They would say that continuing in the faith is the condition of your being reconciled to God. If you don't continue, if you fall away, if you abandon the faith, then you are no longer reconciled. You were reconciled, but because you didn't continue in the faith, your status of reconciled to God is now reversed, and you are once again his enemy. Paul, though, is not saying that continuing is what reconciles, justifies, or saves you. And the key here is understanding and seeing what Paul says in verse 22. Look back at verse 22. He says, he has now reconciled you. Right now, you are reconciled is the idea here. He has now reconciled you. And if you remember from last week, I also explained that Paul intensified the word here for reconciled to mean completely, totally Reconciled. That means that even though you still sin right now, Christian, as a result of your faith in Christ and his death for you, you are as reconciled to God right now as you will be on that future day when he presents you before God Almighty, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So Paul, Paul is saying that the evidence of being fully reconciled to God right now from all that separated you from Him. All the sin in the past, all the sin that you're still yet to commit before you're with Christ, all of that, you are right now reconciled to God. It's all been put upon Him and paid for in full. Such that now, what are you going to do? You're going to continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. And there's a, a fundamental underlying reason why. We haven't even touched in that in full yet. It's because of the Spirit's work of regeneration. What He does, He's transformed you. We haven't got there yet. But what if someone doesn't continue in their faith? What happens if they walk away from God? What happens if someone who's sitting next to you, who professed to know God, was with us for several years. Just finally says, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to believe anymore. I don't think Christ is who he says he is. I don't think the Bible is correct. And on and on the list may go. What if someone doesn't continue firm in their faith? Well, based on what Christ says here and elsewhere, that person is not one of those who are reconciled to God right now. Not that they they were and they weren't, that they never were. He wasn't reconciled and then lost it because all who are reconciled continue firm in the faith. He was never reconciled in the first place. His faith, however it was expressed, 
however you may have observed it for whatever length of time, it was false. His faith was false from the start. And we incorporate what Jesus said. The seed of the gospel, it fell on soil that could not sustain the growth. It didn't take root. It didn't last. Even those whose lives reflected an acceptance of Christianity, they bought a Bible. They attended church. They met for discipleship. They acted like a Christian acts. But it was only for a season. Their faith was only intellectual. It was dead and it was useless. And so it couldn't withstand then the pressures and the pleasures of the world and those things choked it out. The bottom line was that regardless the external behavior that you might have witnessed, no internal fruit of salvation was ever produced. And so by falling away, they give evidence that they were never truly saved in the first place. John 8.31, it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, who believed Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. You are a disciple right now. You say you believe in Me and you are following Me. Here's how it will be evident that you truly are My disciple. He says, you continue in My Word. See, the mark of one who is a true disciple of Christ is they continue in his word. In John chapter 6, when Jesus said, you remember that whole scene in John chapter 6, when Jesus had the multitudes around him, and then he said those really difficult words, that we must eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood. We're not going to go into all that he was saying there, what he meant here. But John says that after he said those words, many who identified themselves as his disciples... It says they withdrew. They were not walking with Him anymore. So they looked like a disciple. They acted like a disciple. They smelled like a disciple. But they weren't His disciple. How do we know? They, didn't, they pulled away. They didn't follow Him anymore. They gave evidence that they had never truly been His disciples by Jesus' definition of what it means to be a disciple. You died to self. The Apostle John, when he was speaking of apostates, he writes in 1 John 2.19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be showed that they all are not of us. See, this is the consistent teaching of Scripture. It's the mark of the genuine believer. You remain. Teaching of Scripture is that the proof that you are truly saved is that you are fully reconciled, that your faith in Christ is genuine, is that you continue to follow Christ. Your faith remains steadfast in Christ and it remains to the end no matter what. No matter what. You will persevere to the end because Christ has saved you and He's changed you forever. Now let's briefly look at two additional passages that also teach this, but look like this, look, 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 looks like it's conditional, but it actually teaches the exact opposite. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. 
5 and 6. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, sorry, the author of Hebrews here says, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So the author is using the metaphor here of a house to refer to God's people. He's saying Moses is a servant in the house. Christ, though, is over God's house. Again, Christ is better. Christ is supreme. So Moses is, um, Christ is over God's house. And notice then he says, whose house we are. God's, we are God's house is what he's saying. So from a theological standpoint, the church is, is God's house. I don't mean the building. I mean the people. The people are God's house. The church is what is in view here. And the question of the text is, who makes up God's people? Who makes up God's house? Who makes up God's church? And the author says, we are God's people. He doesn't say, no, he doesn't say we become God's people if we do what? He says, we are God's people if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's how you know you're God's people. Not you'll become it if you do it. You are it because you do it. This is identical to Paul's words in Colossians. If you don't hold fast, then based on this verse, you're not God's household. You weren't of God's household and then were not of His household. If you don't hold fast your confidence in Christ, then you have never been of His household. It doesn't matter if we're talking about people who seem to know so much about the Bible and seem to be good teachers of the Bible. You know what? The Pharisees taught the Bible. They knew the Bible, at least the Old Testament, better than you. It says they were so zealous to make proselytes, they'd travel over land and sea to do it. So can a non-Christian participate in ministry? Even zealously, more zealously perhaps than you. Is that possible? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But if they don't continue in their faith to the end, it is not just that they are not of God's household. They never were His house in the first place. They just looked like they were. They just looked like they were. They acted like they were, but they weren't. They didn't continue. Look down at verse 14. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This is just like the previous verse. The author asserts a, a reality in the first half of the sentence, and then he gives the evidence of that reality in the second half. What's the reality the, that he's asserting here? We have become partakers of Christ. That's the reality. Not we will become. Not we hope to become. We have already become partakers of Christ. How do you know? That's the reality. What's the evidence of this reality? He says, if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. Faith is what makes us partakers of Christ. And those who have become partakers of Christ, saved, they hold fast their assurance firm to the end. That's what he's saying. Holding fast firm to the end. It's not a condition that makes you a partaker of Christ. He's talking about those who already are partakers of Christ. It's the characteristic of those whose faith is genuine. Persevering. Or what happens if you don't hold fast? What happens if you fall away? It isn't, well, now you won't become a partaker of Christ. 
No, the first half of the condition doesn't say that we will become. He says we have become. And so if you fail to hold fast to the end, it reveals you never became a partaker of Christ in the first place. Persevering in the faith is one of the, mo- one of the prominent marks of genuine salvation. Those whom Christ saves, they remain in the faith. They continue to follow Christ. They never back away from the truths of the gospel permanently. And as Paul says in Colossians, they cannot be moved away from the hope of the gospel that they've heard. What is the hope of the gospel that they heard? I know that I am now reconciled by the blood of Christ right now, fully, finally reconciled. I did nothing to accomplish that. Absolutely nothing. Christ did everything. I'm forgiven. I'm reconciled to God. And this isn't just my hope. It's the universal hope of the gospel that he says in in Colossians, he says it's proclaimed in all creation under heaven. There's no other hope but this one regarding salvation. There's not another way. There's not another Savior who can reconcile you to God completely and fully. And all who have put their hope in Him, they will not move away from this hope. They remain steadfast in it. This is the mark of a genuine believer. Now that being said, I want you also to understand that steadfast faith perseveres through seasons of doubt. Steadfast faith perseveres through seasons of doubt. Can we doubt at times? Yes. Yes, we all have doubted. Some of you may be doubting right now, and you're sitting there going, is he talking about me? I just want to encourage you. Your doubts don't mean you're not saved. We can even doubt severely. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You want to see someone who faced situations that caused some very significant concerns and questions in his mind? What nominal believer are we talking about who felt this way? Just the Apostle Paul. Just the Apostle Paul had seasons of doubt and perplexity and questions. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, that nominal Christian Paul had doubts. He says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. Perplexed. But not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, this word here, Paul is admitting to us that sometimes he gets perplexed about what God does and what God allows. And this word perplexed, it's the word that Paul used to describe how he felt about the Galatians when they were listening to this other gospel being preached that said you need to go back to the law and you need to be a Christian, you've got to come under the law. And he's like, I'm perplexed about you guys. I cannot figure you out. I don't get it. He's saying that's the way he can feel sometimes. That what God allows into his life. I don't understand you, God. He was afflicted in many ways. And if we look at what Scripture says, it means he was beaten with rods on three occasions. He was stoned and left for dead. That means they thought he was dead. They had completed their job of stoning Paul to death and they walked away. But he wasn't dead. 
He says, he was shipwrecked. Not once, not twice. Three times he was shipwrecked. And one of those times, he spent all day and all night in the water. Imagine what was going through his mind. I'm supposed to be on this mission for you, God. Are you going to send a whale, maybe? Like with Jonah? Something? Anyone? Are you hearing me, God? I'm a little perplexed right now. I'm just trying to serve you. Why are you allowing these things to happen? But even though he was perplexed by what God was allowing, notice what it never led him to. What does it say? Perplexed, but not despairing. See, that's the evidence of genuine faith right there, lived out right in front of our eyes. Perplexed, but not despairing. He never looked at what had happened to him and decided, you know, if this is, I didn't sign up for this. I know you said something about a cross and following, and I didn't sign up for this. He never did that. He never did that. He didn't say, I'm done. He didn't say, you're not worth this, Christ. He never turned his back on Jesus and walked away, even though he was perplexed and didn't know what was going on. So you may be just as perplexed about what God is doing in your life. You may even be wavering in your faith, wondering if he's worth it, wondering, you know, if if, if it's going to last. Is my faith going to last? Because it's really, it's really being stretched to the max right now. You're saying, you know, I believe in eternal security for goodness sake. I believed in once saved, always saved. But there are certain times that you will face in your walk with God and you will, you can't help but wonder. You can't help but wonder if the perseverance of your faith, if it rests on the reliability of your own resolve. Because if it does, you just don't know if you're going to make it. See, we all face times of not understanding, of doubting, of questioning, of being discouraged. Think of John the Baptist. He was, he was in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. He's full confidence in Jesus being the Christ. He sees the, the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And he says, that's the one God told me is, is the Lamb of God. <laughs> He's the one. And so he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His testimony was that Jesus, his cousin in the flesh, he's the Son of God. And then what happened later? John confronted Herod because he'd taken Herod's brother Philip's wife to himself. And John's like, mm -mm -mm. No, that's wrong. So threw him in prison. But Herod wanted to kill him, but he knew better. Publicly, that would just be... Politically, that would be bad news. So he didn't do that. Ah, uh, but not Herodias. She's like, nobody's going to tell me who I can sleep with. And so she gets her daughter to do the dance. And, and Herod is just mesmerized. I'll give you half my kingdom. What do you want? I want John's head on the platter. That's what I want. Remember what happened. He's in, the, he's, in, he's in the jail. He's facing imminent death. He knows it's over. Remember what he had his disciples who visit him to come and do? Do you remember? It's in Luke 7. I want you to go find Jesus. And I, I just want you to ask this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? 
The one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world is sitting in a jail about to die. And he says, just, I just need to know, Jesus, are you the one? Because I'm about to die. Jesus, I think you're the Messiah. But at this moment in time, I must confess I'm not completely sure. So can Christians doubt? You bet they can. The best of them can. But they never John can doubt, so can you, so can I. And John's doubts means that you are free. You're free from the shame of admitting your own doubts at times. There's nothing shameful being this side of heaven and saying, I just, I'm not sure, Jesus. He's mindful that you are but dust. He's mindful of you, Christian. He doesn't want you to tuck those doubts down deep inside and never deal with them. Go ahead. Let's bring them out. Let's expose your doubts to the light of day, to the light of the Word. And let's just see. Here's the glorious truth that shines forth in the darkness of your doubt. Here it is. Christ, who called you to Himself, He won't let you fall away from Him. How are we to run this race that's set before us? Hebrews 12 makes it clear. We fix our eyes on Jesus. You run this race by fixing your eyes on Him. And it says, Who endured hostility by sinners, and He endured even the shameful cross. So we consider Him, but not just the suffering, but the glorious result of the suffering. Because of what He endured, the work of salvation, it's done. God's exalted Him to His right hand. God had glorious purposes for Christ's suffering. And the same is true for you. He's going to vindicate you. He's going to satisfy you. He's going to strengthen you. And you need to believe that He can. Because if you don't, and if instead you question, and you choose to just keep questioning and doubting His goodness and His love for you in the midst of these things you don't understand, you know what's going to happen? You're going to grow weary and you're going to just further lose heart. I didn't say you're going to lose your salvation. Not if you're His. You're just going to make it worse for yourself. You need to reinforce your faith in who He is. Christians can and they do lose heart, but they don't fall away. So keep your eyes fixed on Him. Look what He endured by the Spirit of God's power in Him. And know that He can do that with you too. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Does Jesus say that some of them hear and follow? No, he says his sheep continually hear and follow. And this is the big picture of the Christian life. There may be times when someone who has professed Christ is not following. Should you go and tell them that, well, your state as a Christian is totally in question now because you're not following right now. I... Is there a reason to wonder? Sure, yes. But you need to keep the big picture in mind. That we need to talk, we need to discuss, we need to lay things out, we need to come alongside. All that is true. But you don't sit there and say, well, you're not walking, so you're not a Christian. You never wore one in the first place. I wouldn't recommend that. Because this might just be a season of doubt. Resisting God. What He's doing in them, with them. Right? They just don't, they're perplexed. And it's coming out, it's just, I just don't know, I just don't know. 
help them to fix their eyes again on Jesus. So instead of telling them they aren't saved, remember, it's time that will tell. It's time. We can see the lack of fruit, and we should be concerned. Time is what will tell. No, I'm just... Let me speak to you moms and dads with wayward children. You have regrets about how you raised your kids. Every parent has regrets about how they raised their kids. You brought them to church. They heard week after week about Jesus, what He did for them on the cross. They memorized verses. They said they loved Jesus. They might have even prayed to receive Christ. And you tried to live your faith out before them at home. But it was difficult. And you have regrets. You think, oh, what a hypocrite I was. You know, and that's probably true. Because that's true of every parent. We are all hypocrites in our own homes. And now they've entered into adulthood. And they have walked away from Christ. And so you do what every parent who loves their children does. You beat yourself up. And you think, I failed. I failed. Let me encourage you. If they still have breath in their body, then there is still hope. There is still hope. They can still come to Christ. Right? They may have walked away from hearing about Christ because they were never saved in the first place. Okay? Because you can pray to receive Christ and not really receive Christ. Okay, so we, we have to understand that. You're not doing any favors by saying, oh, they just need to you know, turn back and be faithful to Jesus again. You just need to say, you know, they're not living like a Christian. I have no reason to believe that they're a Christian right now. That's a perfectly acceptable, maybe even the best way for you to orient yourself towards them. You know, what did they do as children? Like all our children, they just have to please you. They start to please their teachers. You got a gold star or some little thing for the verse you memorized. I mean, that's what children do. But the world, as they got into it further and deeper, they choked out whatever measure of belief they had. Remember this. Sometimes this is the most encouraging thing I can think to say to someone who's in this position. They can't unhear what they heard. No matter what they go through in life, no matter how far they seem to have gotten away from Christ, they know what you told them. And they know what they heard in the Sunday school classes. They know what they heard or read for themselves. And the verses that, that, they, that they memorized, they may still be there. They can't escape it. And you know what they also can't escape? Your prayers. You go directly to the one who saved the one who calls, who says to his sheep, time to come. Come on. Enough. It's time to come. Now, it may just be a season, too. And God will bring them back and, and bring them to repentance and they'll follow again. Or maybe he'll just cause them to hear his voice for the very first time. And they'll really forsake this world and stop following. Oh, there's more here to talk about. 
It's just it's so deep. We haven't even got to this main punch about regeneration and why all this is true. What's the underlying reason? Because the Spirit changes you. We'll get into that, Lord willing, soon. I think we might have another topic next week. But be encouraged today. If you're struggling, fix your eyes on Christ. If you have a child that's wayward, oh, go to God for them. Be on your knees for them. But have hope. There's still time. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Lord, we, we cast ourselves upon you. Our glorious Savior. You saved us from the muck and the mire of our own sin. We may have been raised in a Christian home, but oh, we were little Pharisees. We thought that the more verses we had memorized equated somehow into righteousness. It didn't. You saved us. And you can save our children. You can save our family. You can save our friends, people we love, who seem to have turned away from what they once knew and believed. Use us to reach out to them anew. Preach the gospel to them and fix their eyes on Jesus. We ask this in Christ.